You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online video platform geared towards making you a better hunter. Watch instructional videos taught by hunting experts like Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, and Corey Jacobson. After the hunt, learn how to prepare your harvest from world-class wild game chefs like Hank Shaw and Jamie Tagan. Whether it's your first year hunting or you grew up doing it, Outdoor Class will take your skills up a notch. Use code EMPIRE20 at checkout to save 20% off. Visit OutdoorClass.com to learn more. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be doing a quick recap of the season thus far. Some things that really actually surprised me quite a bit about what I've been seeing in the woods and on camera for the past couple of weeks in late October. Dealing with this warm weather that we have going on. And also a breakdown of Sam's recent successful hunt. Before we get started, I have a quick message about the Spartan Forge app which you can get a 20% discount on by using the code DIY. The app allows you to do all of your standard mapping, navigation in the field, and waypoint management. You can currently choose from three different satellite views, topo, and in many areas aerial imagery at multiple time points throughout history, view public and private lands, color code your permission status on those private lands, view all of your forecasted and historical weather info, add journaling entries for your hunts that automatically tag the weather conditions and wind for that time period, and view a deer movement prediction powered by machine learning based on collared deer studies across the country. I also have a walkthrough video posted on my YouTube channel that you can use to physically see the app in more detail. And with that, let's dive back into the episode. Okay, so I guess I'll start off here with giving you guys a quick update on how the traditional hunting went. I had mentioned in a podcast earlier in the year that I was going to try and fill my in-state tag with my recurve, and I'd done a ton of practicing all throughout the summer, all throughout the early fall, a lot of tinkering with different arrow setups and tunes for that bow to get it shooting as best as I you know, was able to, and also making sure that my own form was as tip-top as it could be. I had done some uh, virtual coaching, which also helped improve the form quite a bit. And ultimately, I went in with a lot of confidence in being able to shoot that bow. And what I also had done was I almost made it too hard on myself by effectively going into an area that I have hunted a few times in the past and I've done a lot of postseason scouting on, but it's an area where you can't run trail cameras. It's a fairly vast area, a little bit lower deer density. It's got really high uh, hunting pressure just due to the 
proximity to the cities, but it's a habitat type that I can do well and I know how to hunt it. Um, so I figured I would work out pretty well. It just meant that I'd be going in semi-blind on a lot of hunts and just trying to figure out the day of, you know, what the, the freshest sign was and making it happen. So this area was a cattail marsh and best case scenario, you're able to find white oak acorns early season that are falling. You know where the bedding is based on historical scouting and looking at the aerial photos and you just set up between the two. And for a lot of those early hunts, I was not finding a whole lot of acorns at all. Uh, the acorn crop was just low in general, though there were some isolated pockets. And uh, in fact, opening weekend, Sam and I went hunting together in this area and she set up in a, a spot that had a ton of acorns falling. I set up in a spot that had a few falling. Uh, neither one of us ended up seeing deer that day. And one of the challenging things with uh, my work this fall is that I've been working late pretty much every weekday. You know, historically, early season, I'm able to get out a few days a week uh, when you have those really late afternoon, late evening uh, sunsets. I'm able to get out from work early enough to be able to get a quick hunt in, but really this fall, that wasn't the case. Uh, so the month of September, even early October is pretty much just the weekend. So every time I was going out there, I was having to refigure out, okay, what's changed since last weekend. And finally, after, I don't know, two, three weekends, I figured out where, um, a good congregation of deer were located. You know, there was a lot of good bedding areas that just were dry. They didn't have deer in them, you know, right now, but this place did for the, you know, a couple weekends, when I finally found it is, you know, fresh deer sign everywhere. Um, fresh tracks was jumping deer in the proximity of some of those islands in the cattails. And so I knew that I'd kind of found that spot. Well, gave it a couple sits and saw deer just about every time. But, but the problem was first time in was really just figuring it out and not having a great idea of what trees I'd be able to get into. Pick something that was close, saw two does and figured, okay, now I know how I'm going to be able to hunt this next time. Went in the next time, set up 50 yards from where the bedding should have been. Didn't see anything moving during daylight. Get down, take one step away from the tree at dark, and the deer bust right on the edge of, of the woodlot that I was in, um, in the cattails. So it had just, you know, five, maybe ten minutes earlier, had that deer got up and started moving, it would have been within range. And my, you know, standards were targeted appropriately for the weapon I was using and the amount of intel I had, which meant I was pretty much going to shoot whatever. Fast forward to the next hit, went into the adjacent island, got in, set up, and thinking, okay, this might be the night. And sure enough, it was almost the exact same thing. The movement was just so late. Uh, I was, you know, put the hook on the bow to start letting it down right at last light. And right as that happened, you could start hearing the footsteps of the deer started to come out of the bedding cover. And that day I was 60 yards away from the bedding, but there wasn't much wind. So that was really as close as I could have gotten. So again, it was like back to back. Um, and then on the tail end of that, it's like, okay, now you got to wait till the next weekend to figure out the sign again. So it was just really a, a challenge to, to figure that out. I think if I was able to hunt more weekdays, I definitely would have had enough opportunities to, you know, get an arrow shot at a deer at, at one of those times, but I eventually decided mid month, mid October, okay, I'm going to go to, you know, one of these areas in Wisconsin. I know there's a lot more deer, just higher deer densities. There's a little bit better, you know, cover more oak trees, more white oaks. And I go into the first day and I see deer. So that particular hunt, um, and this was the last hunt that I was even planning on bringing the recurve because 
after this particular hunt, I was going to say switch to the compound, start hunting uh, for bucks, you know, specifically. Whereas up to that point, it was pretty much a, you know, shoot whatever type of deal. Uh, so this last hunt, based on the state, I was just going to shoot a doe. Had a doe come in. It was like an hour before dark. She comes in just perfect broadside. And I've got the, the camera arm. It's right on the deer. I got the 360 over the shoulder. Like everything is just for self-filming, mobile hunting, this is like the perfect scenario. And I uh, draw back and get into my back tension, get into good alignment. Deer doesn't have any idea that I'm there. It's at most 20 yards, probably 18. And I start expanding, pull, pull, pull. And then uh, the grip trigger goes off. I release the arrow. Shot breaks just perfectly. Arrow's going right on the exact line that I wanted to. And seemingly when that arrow is like five yards away from the deer, it just turns inside out and just about scrapes its belly on the ground as it uh, goes to run away. And that arrow just basically grazed above the spine and the back strap, which obviously it sucks anytime you're wounded an animal. You hope that's never the case. But I think in this instance, that deer um, basically should have recovered just fine because there wasn't anything even close to, to vital being hit there. And <clears throat> I looked at the footage a number of times, slow motion, frame by frame. And it appeared that the deer didn't jump to the sound of the bow because it would have reacted earlier than it did. Uh, but it seems to have reacted to the sound of the arrow, if I had to speculate. And because that arrow is only flying, you know, 175 feet a second, it's got a lot more room to go. In, in fact, I, you know, put my cursor on where the arrow ended up impacting and it would have been like low 10 ring on a 3D target. So, you know, pretty much perfect shot placement if the deer hadn't have moved or if it only would have moved, you know, four to six inches. In reality, for me to perfectly hit that deer, I would have had to aim off. I would have had to aim like two inches underneath the belly line based on how much it moved. So that was an unfortunate learning experience. And I've heard other guys in, in traditional say that you should aim off the deer or you should, you know, aim belly line, aim lower than you, you think. And it's kind of an interesting deal because people talk about getting a quiet setup. Well, most traditional setups are quieter than compound setups. So it's like, well, why, if we're shooting such quiet setups, do we have to aim, you know, so much lower? Apparently it's not quiet enough. And, uh, the other challenge is sometimes the deer don't jump. We've had a number of deer. Sam shot one in Nebraska the other year. Um, my North Dakota buck from uh, what, three years ago. And they, they basically just stood there and took the arrow and didn't really move at all. So it's like about the time that you decide, okay, I'm going to aim off, you might get one of those instances in where the deer doesn't really move. So it's a tough scenario. Uh, but anyways, that was the last hunt that I had planned on bringing the traditional bow and I switched to the compound sense and have been kind of, you know, get ready for that pre-rut and hunting scrapes along doe bedding and playing off of historical trail camera data to know basically where to be on what wind conditions at what times. And that is where I've had some really interesting learnings because I have what, in this one area, two years of historical trail camera data that's consistent enough to say like, you should be in these spots for sure at these dates you know, plus or minus a few days based on the weather. Well, for anybody in the Midwest, you know that, uh, it's been warm. It's been above average highs in the sixties, pretty consistently, even breaking 70. Uh, I think in even States like Iowa and Nebraska, they're over 80 degrees, which is abnormally warm for this time of year. And I don't necessarily mind warm temperatures in the rut. You know, I shot my deer in Wisconsin 
two years ago when it was 70 degrees on November 8th. I don't necessarily mind the heat then, but late October, it's like they're not quite full blown, you know, crazy, you know, breeding does. And it's just not the same scenario. So the warm weather, um, did kind of mess up things. I think a little bit, but what's interesting was it's not like I was, it's not like I was seeing just a lack of daytime movement. I was seeing just generally a lack of some of the mature bucks making their shift towards those pre-rut areas where they start hitting those scrape lines along the doe bedding areas like they'd done the last couple of years. You know, smaller bucks, two, three-year-olds, uh, for sure. But you compare what I've been seeing this year compared to last year or the year before, and it's just night and day difference. And there's enough instances of some of these deer occasionally popping up on a camera where it's like, okay, they, they're still alive. Um, but it's like, what, what's different this year? The only thing I can think of other than the weather and other than the consistent South winds, which last year was, we switched to Northwest right around, I think the 30th of October or so. The only other thing I can think of is that in this particular area that I've been focusing in on, there's uh, more standing corn adjacent to some of the public. And as we all know, standing corn is a good place for bucks to bed. And it's basically gives them everything they need in terms of cover. Uh, it's easy for them to walk through. And while, as long as that corn is up, they don't necessarily have to move as early. I would assume that just based on the timing of the rot, they would still make that movement. But, uh, that's the only other variable I think that, uh, is impacting this. The other variable, I guess, is that there's been more hunting pressure this year, a lot more trail cameras, a lot more cell cameras that I'm finding in the woods. In fact, two hunts this year where I basically went in, in the morning to trees that I had already, you know, kind of pre-planned, you know, this is the tree to be in, uh, get in there in the dark set up. And then as soon as it gets daylight, I find a cell cam, you know, 20 yards away from the tree, uh, or I see a set of climbing sticks that wasn't there the last year. That's happened to me a couple times. So that's definitely an influence, but I don't think it's the whole picture. So I'd be curious to hear from maybe some of the listeners, if you have any thoughts based on your annual historical data that you look at, do you see a difference in, uh, I guess, just strictly weather when it relates to when the deer show up, you know, nocturnal or not? And also how big of an influence, uh, especially for some of you ag country people are you seeing with standing corn versus if the corn is already out by late October. So that's probably, you know, enough for me. The next week I think will be good uh, because we're starting to finally get the cold weather coming back in again. And I think for as long as it's been warm, which is like over a week solid at this point, like the entire last week of October, now we're finally getting that uh, to turn back in a more favorable direction. We're getting the north wind starting to come in a little bit starting on, I think, Friday, uh, a little bit of rain that's coming through and the temperatures are going to drop by like 10 or 20 degrees. So I'm really looking forward to that. If I do happen to tag out, then maybe I'm able to take a trip out to North Dakota and hunt there during the rut, which I've been wanting to do for the last several years, but uh, have not had a chance to do it quite yet. Maybe this year is the year we'll see. Now on to Sam's hunt. Sam's shot a couple of deer now. She's still waiting on that buck. Uh, she wants to get her first buck but she shot a number of does already. Every time she shot a doe, she's been with me. I've either been in the same tree or, you know, in a tree really adjacent to her so that I was able to film and kind of, you know, give her direction. And we're able to spend time together and that sort of thing. And she's hunted on her own 
several times, but just has never connected. This past week, I went into a spot, she went into a spot, and uh, we got in there kind of like gray light in the morning. She got set up and was, you know, setting up her saddle and, and had pulled her bow up, but not yet knocked an arrow, put on the release, and had a buck that came in just like right at the wrong time when she, you know, had that deer come in a minute later, she probably would have had a release on, probably would have had an arrow knocked. Um, and you know, she tried her best to get everything all ready to go. Deer passes by at five yards, just wasn't quite enough time to get it pulled off. So that was a tough scenario. I always kind of say that for as hard as she works, she, she definitely deserves the opportunity. She's had a number of really, really, really close calls that, uh, you know, I think it's just going to make the time point when she does finally connect in that first buck extra sweet because of all the the trial and error and learning experiences and everything that's gone into it I think at this point and she's just been grinding it out pretty much all on public land we haven't really tried any private at all maybe that's something we'll try next year a little bit knocking on doors closer to home so that we can have some opportunities that we don't have to drive 45 minutes an hour hour and a half to get to uh, but regardless just uh yesterday I'm back at work and Sam says she's going to go out and hunt. Cool. She picked a spot on the map that she wanted to go to, had an idea of a particular side of a ridge that we've hunted close to. And she wanted to make a move with a slightly different wind than we had hunted it last time. And just based on the deer travel that we had seen and some of the sign, she had a pretty good idea of where she wanted to hunt. So she gets in there. She, uh, you know, looks up the, the map on Spartan Forge and takes a route in here that basically zigzags her up around a ridge so she's able to use the wind to stay safe from most of the bedding that the deer are using in this particular hill country area makes a big loop around gets set up in a tree that's right kind of on the pretty much on the leeward side of this ridge and there's a good trail right on the lip and pretty good cover around this there's a couple fallen trees but it's just generally thick a good mix of mature trees, oaks, and also some understory. And right at last light, doe comes in, she turns around and, uh, it's, if you're a right-handed person, the deer came in from like her four o'clock, three, four o'clock and started to go kind of directly back behind her to like her six o'clock. So she turned around to spin that direction, drew back. I think the deer saw her draw back, got a little nervous and, uh, curved around and stopped quartering two. Uh, and she decided to really hug the shoulder as, as tight as she could. And she released the arrow, um, pretty much the last, you know, few minutes of light. So she saw the light did not go in right where she had expected deer runs off. She couldn't hear it crash. And, uh, she could see the light and knock basically on the ground thinking at that point it was a pass through. So she calls me, uh, give her some advice of what to do next. Um, ask her to, you know, and describe what the deer had done, that sort of thing. She goes down and just finds, not that the arrow had passed through, but actually it was just like the last eight, nine inches of the arrow with the fletching and the light of knock laying on the ground. So it had broken off, which, and she thought, did I miss the deer? Did I deflect off of something? And it's like, no, either, either one of those scenarios, it would have been obvious if your arrow deflected with those lighted knocks, that's a really jolting, um, thing to see if you had a deflection and if you had missed the deer is a very, very low likelihood that the arrow would have snapped. It almost always happens when the arrow was a partial pass through and the deer starts running and it, you know, clips against a branch. So she described the shot and I thought, uh, you know, based on what you're describing, 
sounds like a one lung, maybe liver, stomach uh, type deal. Maybe you got both lungs. It just depends how, how close that deer was quartering. But the fact that we weren't really sure, she couldn't find any blood at the impact site. The deer took off a million miles an hour. She said she thought she remembered seeing the white tail as the deer was running away, which usually isn't a great sign. She doesn't remember the deer doing the mule kick. Based on all that, we're like, okay, well, it's probably safer to, to back out. So she left her light a knock on the ground where it was. And uh, we called Shane, um, Shane Simpson, our good friend, who, of course, has a couple of tracking dogs. He runs the Cali Chronicles on YouTube. And so we decided to meet him in the morning, first thing, to go back in and check out the spot. And sure enough, I mean, there was no blood um, for the first 20, 25 yards. We didn't, did, couldn't see anything, not a drop. And uh, Shane had Callie pick up the track and, and try and run around. And she kind of went through the bedding area a little bit and it was doing some zigzagging. We found a bed that she kept circling and we went and checked the bed out and there's not a single drop of blood in there. So it was like, oh, maybe she picked up the wrong deer to start tracking. Um, but eventually she dove kind of off the ridge because we, you know, kind of in indicated to Shane, like she went that way. Um, so we just kind of let the dog work and basically they went and ran down the hill and, uh, we hear, a a message from Shane, like, oh, I found the deer. <laughs> so we went and followed and on the way down there, we picked up the trail that the doe had been running on and found like three drops of blood on the, the edge of the ridge. And then went, and that was like 40 or 50 yards past the impact site. Then we dove down the hill and found like, you know, four or five more drops of blood, like a hundred yards into the track. I'm, I'm sure we probably missed some of it. We're going down there pretty fast, but there was not much blood and we, we find the deer and exactly like we had, uh, projected, you know, Sam's initial gut reaction of what she hit and what she was shooting at, when she took the shot all basically made sense. The arrow looked like it impacted her right in the shoulder. And, uh, but obviously it didn't because that would have impacted the penetration. I think quite a bit based on her setup, but the arrow went in about, let's say three quarters of the way up the scapula, but right on the edge, like it just cleared the ridge of the scapula going in and chipped the back corner of the scapula. Then it went in through that near side lung, actually lacerated the outside of the heart, kind of a, just above the atrium, uh, ripped the pericardium and then basically got lodged in the stomach. Didn't look like it hit the liver at all. Didn't look like it hit the other lung at all. Uh, and so that deer was probably dead pretty quickly based on the fact that it hit the heart. It probably just ran off at a million miles an hour down the hill. And the fact that the arrow basically had no exit hole and the entrance was, you know, it broke the, her arrow shaft. So there was, you know, 14 inches of arrow in the cavity. There was like a four inch chunk of arrow that was broken off and clogging the hole in the shoulder. So you got a whole bunch of meat and connective tissue and everything. And it's high up on the deer, you know, a little bit above halfway up and the deer wasn't bleeding a whole lot out of its mouth. So all that was a recipe for like zero blood. I think eventually we probably would have found that deer just by grid searching, but it would have been a very, very difficult deer to track just based on following the blood trail. Um, you know, we would have basically just resorted to, it went this way, let's grid. So it was really helpful to have Shane along in that scenario. And, uh, we got that deer packed up and, and brought out of the woods. And for Sam, it was, you know, big milestone because again, this is the first time that she had gone in all on her own. I wasn't even, you know, at the parking lot 
and again, she's done that before, but this is the first time that she was able to get that opportunity based on that setup and be able to connect on a, a great deer, a really big body deer. We didn't get a weight on it, but you know, the, the picture that's on Shane's Facebook or, or Instagram is probably the best one that dictates the size. And I would have to guess that this deer is 130 pounds field dressed, maybe more, maybe less, but the, the amount of fat on it was absurd when we were uh, taking it apart and the head is just big and it's just a long deer. So really great opportunity for Sam, really happy for her. And now we're both trying to get our bucks. She's trying to get her first one and I'm trying to get my first one on the year. That'll do it for this week's episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Empire on Instagram and Facebook. Leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman on YouTube and hit the bell icon to be notified of new videos. You can also follow DIY underscore Sportsman on Instagram. And with that, thanks for listening.